Hey, I'd like to pray for us one more time. Um, I love where we've come to this point so far, but uh, I just want to bow our heads and really just kind of take this time to prepare our hearts because it is a transition of sorts. We continue in our worship, but it is a transition as we kind of quiet our hearts, and now we are in the process of not responding necessarily, but receiving. And so we need the Spirit's help in that process. So let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we... uh, just as has already been acknowledged and even as Pastor Tom shared earlier, and we, we reiterate this again, that this is all about you. This is not about us. This is not about our desires. This is not about our wants. This is about you. We come together and we gather together regularly because we need a constant encouragement. We need continual encouragement and continual realignment to the things that matter most in this life coming back to a a central point of reference, that life is about God. And everything in life, our fulfillment in life, meaning in life, all finds its place when it is centered on you. So Father, right now we ask that by your Spirit you would fill us afresh and that you would open our minds and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak to us in very specific ways. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would transform us even now. Sanctify us and and, and remake us so that we might reflect you, Jesus, more clearly. We ask these things in your wonderful and holy name. Amen. There is um, a book that we have not, that I have not mentioned for a very long time, but uh, we've made reference to it in the past. And we even had a, a movie showing. It was called uh, The Insanity of God. Some of you have read this book. Some of you have heard of this book. Some of you have seen the, uh, the movie that is kind of built off of this book. And um, this is probably, you know, as a pastor, I'm sure even as you, you probably have kind of a top five list of books that maybe are kind of your go-tos. This is one of my top five books ever that I've ever read. And the reason why it... Uh, has been so impacting, so profoundly impacting for my own life is because it really kind of gets to the core of what is this journey of faith really all about? And what does it look like when it's challenged in some very extreme ways? The author, Nick Ripkin, uh, though that's his kind of pen name, it's not his real name, he really searches out the answers to one prominent question in this book. And uh, the question he poses that he's really trying to find a fuller answer to is this, how does faith survive? How does faith survive, let alone flourish, in places of life that are overcome with darkness of sin and despair and hopelessness? Maybe it even has a follow-up question, can faith flourish in context in which there is sin and despair and hopelessness. And what we see that what follows on every single page of this book are stories about brothers and sisters in Christ that, who live in different places in the world, but are, they live under heavy scrutiny and really intense religious hostility. But even within the restrictive and religious context in which many of these brothers and sisters live, we see that these followers of Jesus show us 
how to follow Jesus. They show us how to love Jesus, and they show us how to walk with Jesus day after day, even in the midst of great hardship and struggle. And I think in a very similar vein, and really with a similar intent, the Apostle Peter also writes a letter to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ for the sake of encouraging them in their walk of faith, encouraging them in the midst of great persecution and really growing persecution. In fact, when you read the historical accounts around the time when Peter's letter was written, we see that, that Nero was the current Roman emperor. And uh, without re, uh, restating all the historical facts that you maybe learned at some point in time in your life, Nero was, had, a, a, I would say, an infamous reputation. Nero was considered crazy, even by his own countrymen. Crazy, fanatical. Some of the things he would do, most people would not consider actually carrying out, but yet Nero was considered pretty radical in that way. We see that at one point in time, he actually, he's actually has the reputation, Nero does, as burning Rome down. He lit Rome on fire because he had the desire to rebuild it himself. Of course, that did not sit well with his fellow countrymen. And so what we see is that in order to uh, displace blame, in order to kind of re-divert that blame that, that was beginning to grow upon himself, he actually blames the Christians for the Romes that caused so much destruction. And so... We see that now all of a sudden, instead of Nero being on the, on, the, on the hot plate, so to speak, we see that the Christians are now the scapegoat for Nero's atrocities. And we see as a result, this current persecution and religious hostility was only ramping up. It wasn't to its full extent, but it was ramping up. Without getting into too much gross detail, at the same time, we want to be truthful. We see that because of uh, all this hostility, Nero was actually uh, responsible for the most part among most emperors in Rome at that time for many of the martyrs that took place in the Colosseum. He was the one that championed the cause of letting lions eat Christians for sport. He was one, the one responsible for dipping Christians in pitch and lighting them on fire to light the gardens and light the pathways and the streets. The list of atrocities go on and on and on. And so Peter, prior to these atrocities and these hostilities growing to this point, he writes to these brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to encourage their endurance. To encourage their endurance and to encourage their Christ-like conduct as persecution would no doubt intensify. In fact, what we see, what we will see throughout this letter of 1 Peter is that Peter writes to show them how they can be filled with really a triumphant hope, to not be taken out by horizontal circumstances, but to be filled with triumphant hope. And more than that, he writes to help them know what it means to live as Christians on mission as exiles. Christians on mission as exiles. That is the theme that is really intertwined throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter, and it will be the theme that we keep coming back to as a point of reference. If you haven't already turned there, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
And as you're doing so, uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that we are going to be going through the, the, the letter of First Peter together. We, uh, will be, this will be taking us all the way to the first weekend of May, and so that'll be kind of our kind of end of winter, springtime uh, exegesis and preaching moment. Um, first Peter, uh, we did this a couple years ago in our life group, and it was, had such a profound impact in my life and in, I think in our lives that I couldn't wait to actually bring it to a more of a corporate level uh, for us as a church. And so First Peter is going to be the letter in which we are going to extract and be encouraged by. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning of 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you're not there, you can listen, you can turn to it, whatever it may be. Abby, can you give me my little clicker? Thanks. Thanks. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold, that even though it perishes when tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." You know, one of the great challenges of preaching, and I can sure Pastor Mike can attest to this for sure, is which rabbit trails do we choose to go down and which ones do we choose to avoid? These nine verses are dripping. They're saturated with so many profound truths. And, and so we're going to not go down every rabbit trail. But I am going to identify four observations for us this morning that we're going to unpack a little more fully, and I think that really capture the intent of what Peter is seeking to begin his letter by. One of the first observations we see in Peter's opening remarks to these persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey at this, uh, today, one of the first observations we see is that Peter points out an interesting declaration and description of God. We see that, first of all, God is a triune God. God is a triune God, oftentimes referred to as the Trinity. 
And Pastor Mike preached this at the very beginning of the year, so you can refer back to his sermon. He unpacked that for us a little more fully. But we see that Peter, right from the get-go, in his opening remarks, we see that he identifies God as a triune God. You cannot get a clear description of the three members of the Godhead, as well as the complementary nature of the three persons, the three members of the Godhead. But I want to kind of unpack because it's not just that Peter mentions the three members of the Godhead, but he mentions the function of the Godhead, which has a lot of doctrine and theology surrounded, which in some ways has been debated for millennia. First of all, Peter reminds us that these believers, that they were elected by God. Christians... Brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in Jesus Christ were elected by God according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Now, foreknowledge, sometimes for some people, they define it, I think, wrongly in this sense. They say foreknowledge is that God ultimately looks ahead into the future and knows how we would respond, and therefore he elects, quote-unquote, of what we would have done because he's both at the end as well as at the beginning, So foreknowledge is really going, I know what choice you would have made, therefore I elected you because that's the choice you would have made. In other words, still free will still is uh, leading the charge and God is electing based on our free will. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches and that's not what Peter is referring to here because even if you look back at Romans chapter 3, for example, Paul bluntly points out that nobody is righteous and no one chooses God and no one understands or seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the idea or the perspective that, that says we would have chosen God on our own volition is actually unbiblical. The Bible teaches us that we would never choose God on our own volition, or our own will. We only choose God because of what He has already begun or initiated in our lives. And so foreknowledge isn't, isn't God looking ahead and seeing what we would have done. Foreknowledge, I believe, is, and I think John MacArthur helpfully clarifies the definition in this way, foreknowledge is God's eternal predetermined, loving, and saving intention. Foreknowledge is God's eternal, predetermined, loving, and saving intention. Remember, what Paul says, he is both the author as well as the perfecter of our faith. He started it and he completes it. And we are the humble recipients of his mercy and his grace. Therefore, when Paul says, what reason do you and I have to boast? None. Because our salvation is fully dependent on God from start to finish. That's it. Now, I will acknowledge for us this morning, because because I'm not going down this rabbit trail too much, I will acknowledge that this this idea of election or predestination is, is a heavily debated topic and has led to much division within the church of Christ. I didn't even really know this was much of a debate, and then I went to seminary and realized people have been arguing for a thousand years or longer and still debating it. 
Now, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, as I said, because, and I'm not going to camp out on it because Peter himself doesn't camp out on it. He just states it very matter-of-fact and moves on, and guess what? So will we. But, but, there's one point of clarification I do want us to help us understand because this helps us understand our Bibles more fully. God's predetermination of those who will be saved and God's love for all his creation is one of those great paradoxes of Scripture. We must understand that Scripture has many paradoxes and a paradox isn't something that can't be understood. A paradox is just, it shows the limitations of our finite minds. I love, our, as, our, as our brother Robert Smith Jr. says, we, often, we, we approach life with a kind of a, a certain degree of logic, but God is super logical. What does Isaiah say? Who can know the mind of the Lord, Right? His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, meaning we cannot fully grasp or understand all that God does and why he does what he does. All we, but he does give us some very clear indications of who he is and that he's good. And so when we think about this paradox of does God choose people before the foundations of the world or does God truly love all people? Does God care that all people be saved or does he only choose certain people? Well, look at what scripture teaches. Does God love the world? Absolutely. Read John 3.16. Does God desire that none would perish? Absolutely. Look at Peter's second letter, chapter 3, verse 9. Does God desire that all would be saved? Absolutely. First Peter 2, verse 4. Does God elect people according to his foreknowledge? This is what Peter just said for us in his opening remarks. Does God choose us before the foundation of the world? Absolutely. Ephesians 1, 4. Does God predestine us? Yes. Ephesians 1, 5. Does, God, does Jesus choose us versus the other way around? Yes. Look at John 15, 16. So which is it? Yes, both. And this is one of those paradoxes. Some people go, no, you have to make a decision. No, we accept the whole counsel of God. And it doesn't take away from our mission. Those who have God has chosen from the very beginning, we don't know who that is. We go and, ask, and, and relate to one another and reach everyone as if he's chosen all of them. We don't know. All we know is that Peter acknowledges right up front, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you, brothers and sisters, are elect exiles. Not only that, but you are believers that are sanctified or made holy by the Holy Spirit. I won't, I won't camp out on this very long at all, but we, we, we've talked about this before. God's number one intent for you is to remake you or to transform you. Again, we've said this before, right? God loves you and pursued you the way you were, but he has every intention of changing who you were. He has every intention of transforming you to make you the, the best version, the, the Christ-sanctified version of you. He's not changing your personality. He's just getting all the ugliness out of your personality so that you radiate his glory most fully. And the irony of all that is that the, the means by which a God accomplishes that sanctifying work most profoundly is through suffering. 
Kind of a bummer, right? But it's suffering that gets our attention, not comfort. It's trials and pains that get our attention, not when things are easy. But we can count it all joy nonetheless. Because what God is doing is he's actually loving us enough to not let us remain as we are. And so the Spirit's role, the th- one of the members of the Godhead, is to sanctify us, to make us holy. You are declared righteous, you are declared innocent, and now he's in the process of actually making you innocent or righteous and pure and undefiled. And we also see that believers are saved so that they might be obedient to Jesus Christ, having been sprinkled with his blood. Isn't that interesting? You were saved so that you could be obedient to Christ. You weren't saved so you could just live your life the way you want on your terms. You were saved so that you would be obedient and conformed to Christ. That's why God saved you. The irony of it all is that we cannot be obedient to Christ without first being saved in Christ. And we can only be saved in Christ when we are declared innocent from all our sin. And this is what the metaphor describes when you are sprinkled with his blood. It's an Old Testament reference back to the, uh, the, the old sacrificial system where the Jewish people would be sprinkled with blood as a way of symbolizing cleansing. And so what Peter's doing here is he's referring back to that Old Testament sacrificial system and he's saying that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the, one, is the sacrifice that ultimately cleanses all Christians from all sin. So the first observation we see in Peter's opening remarks is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three members of the triune Godhead are working in perfect unity for one purpose, and that purpose is the redemption of your souls. The entire Godhead is advocating for you. Isn't that crazy? The entire Godhead is, is, is seeking you to save you and giving you eyes to see how glorious and amazing God is. That's why we were created in the first place. I think a second observation that I would like to highlight for us this morning that I thought was very profound for us is that the Peter refers to these believers as exiles. Followers of Jesus are considered exiles. Now, depending on which translation you're reading from, you might actually have other terms. Maybe not exile, like the ESV, but maybe your translation says foreigners or aliens, sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, temporary residents. They're all synonymous terms referring to kind of one important implication. Of course, the question is, what is that implication that Peter's trying to make here? What is he referring to by saying, you believers are exiles, You're aliens. Well, I think there's two important purposes in Peter referring to these believers as exiles. First of all, it has to do with fulfilled promise, and the second one has to do with identity. To be an exile has to do with God's fulfilled promise as well as our identity. Let's break that down just for a moment here. In regards to fulfilled promise, We need to understand that many of these believers were scattered because of persecution, right? Many had been driven away from their homes. Many had been driven from into foreign lands. 
Some of them were living with people unfamiliar with them. They had been left, some of them had left behind all the possessions that were important to them. Many had left their, uh, had been removed from other family members and close relationships. From a worldly perspective, we might conclude that these believers lost everything that was important in their life. And while this initially seems very unfortunate, we see that persecution was a means by which God was actually fulfilling what he promised to do. Remember back in Acts 1, right? Jesus has already resurrected from the dead, right? He's around. People at first are kind of like, is that really Jesus? Because no one expected him to come back. They thought their Savior was dead. And so, again, in kind of a weird sort of sense, people were not able to recognize him, even though he was the resurrected Christ. You can look, at, you can look back at the transfiguration to see that his glorified body was still Jesus. And we see that he's walking around and finally people recognize, oh, he is Jesus. He is resurrected. Look what God is doing. And then just before he ascends into heaven, he says this, he doesn't ask this question. He says this promise. He says, you will be my witnesses. And you're not going to be witnesses that remain here in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is, a, this is a statement of fact. Jesus says, this is what will happen. And then all-out persecution continues to grow, continues to intensify. And at first we could say, that's so sad, that's so unfortunate. And yet then you look back from a, a redemptive historical perspective and you see that God was actually using the pers- persecution to scatter the seed of the gospel. He was actually moving people out so that the gospel seed might be planted into the uttermost parts of the world. There's an article that uh, I was recalling, and um, if you've ever taken the course Perspectives of the Christian World Movement, Ralph Winters writes a number of articles in there, and, and he just gives you a perspective of, we see things so kind of horizontal sometimes and so limited at times, and then he goes, but look what God is actually doing through it all. The fact that the Roman Empire by the fourth century, Christianity became the official religion. Who would have foreseen that, right? Under Constantine? The fact that the, that the Christians were actually, the, the Vikings the whole Celtic movement and stuff all happened because Christians became slaves, but through their slavery actually led all those people, to, many of those people to Christ. And so God is literally using the evil intentions and actions of people to spread the seed of the gospel and so that the gospel might go global. Now, of course, we don't love persecution, but God uses persecution to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So on one hand, an exile is a label of fulfilled promise. But secondly, it's also a label of identity. The very definition of what it means to be a sojourner or an exile or an alien refers to someone who inhabits one place, but whose thoughts and devotion are consumed by another. In fact, if you look uh, historically, even, even, even like Jewish synagogues or even Muslim mosques, 
they have the same idea or, or perspective on life. And when, you, when they have mosques built or synagogues built, they're always structured in such a way that when you walk into those synagogues or into those mosques, you are actually facing east. Jews are facing Jerusalem. Muslims are facing Mecca. It's by design. Because although they may inhabit another area of the world, their devotion and their loyalty are kind of centered on a more strategic piece of real estate. And the parallel here is as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we too live in a world. We live in this world, but our loyalty and our devotion is to another kingdom. And as to another king. We are aliens, we are exiles, we are sojourners, we're foreigners in a world because our eternal home is with God and his kingdom. What does Hebrews 13, 14 say? This world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Now, of course, some people can unfortunately take this to an, uh, a degree that is not intended in Scripture. People can sometimes take this to mean that we retreat from the world and we withdraw from the world and we hide out until Christ comes. And that is not what God is saying. That is not what he's advocating or condoning because, again, he wants us in the world. He wants the gospel to be spread everywhere. He wants us to be his witnesses. So, technically, we are in the world, fully in this world, but we know that we are not, how we say, of the world. We don't possess or acquire the value system that is consistent of this world. It means that we are temporary citizens of one country or culture, but our values and priorities belong to an eternal kingdom altogether. I wonder, which kingdom do you most identify with? Which kingdom are we most thoughtful of? Which home do we think the most about? Followers of Jesus are exiles. But thirdly, we see that Peter, in one of his primary intents in his opening remarks, is this, in the midst of great hardship, he says, we have, re- we have reason to rejoice. Even in the midst of suffering and hardship and pain, Peter says, Christians have reason to rejoice. Actually, the word there is, to, we have reason to greatly rejoice. In light, of all, in light of all that these believers had left behind, in light of everything that they've had to, to, to say no to or walk away from, Peter encourages them with a crucial perspective that would ultimately enable them to take their focus off their current circumstances, off the horizontal, and onto God's promises to them. In a sense, Peter is saying these to these suffering believers. Hey, I know that things are really difficult right now. I know that things are bad right now. I know you've experienced great loss, but guess what? Be encouraged. Not our usual response, right? Everything I hold dear, perhaps taken away, stripped from me, but be encouraged. Be encouraged by what exactly? 
Be encouraged and filled with hope because there is one thing that cannot be taken from you. There is one promise that cannot be taken from you. One thing that, that, is, that can never go away and that one thing is your salvation. Yes, people may be able to take everything else from you and we, don't have the, we don't, may not be able to possess the control to, to hold on to things as we, as we would hope, but there's one treasure of eternal value that cannot be stolen, sabotaged, corrupted, or even messed with, and that is your eternal inheritance. Hallelujah. Amen. What is this inheritance that Peter makes so much reference to? It's a salvation that is ultimately initiated by God. It is a salvation that is motivated by God's mercy. It is a living hope because Jesus Christ is a living Savior. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it cannot be destroyed. It's an inheritance that is undefiled, meaning that it's, it's pure and uncontaminated. It's an inheritance that is unfading, meaning that it, it doesn't lose its vitality and its strength. It's vibrant all the way because it's eternal. It's an inheritance that is reserved for all those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's the real assuring promise that we are being guarded by the power of God through faith. It's why, Pete, it's why Paul can say so bluntly, and as we learned a couple of weeks ago from Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? As Paul would say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Peter's point to all this? If you have Jesus Christ, then you have received an inheritance that is beyond all measure. If you have Jesus Christ, then you are blessed Indeed, you are more blessed than anybody else with all their lavish toys. If you have Jesus Christ, then be encouraged because there's an eternal inheritance waiting for you that cannot be taken away. So look past. Don't turn a blind eye, but see beyond. Look at your suffering through the lens of this eternal inheritance that awaits for you. And through that, Peter says, you have every reason to rejoice. You have every reason to greatly rejoice. Brothers and sisters, we have reason to greatly rejoice. In fact, I want to do that right now. We're actually going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. But we're not going to do this in a quiet contemplation Peter says, you have reason to greatly rejoice. To me, that verbiage says, it it almost evokes a public response. So I'm going to ask you, let's encourage one another. What reason do you have to greatly rejoice? Let's hear from you. What is it? Say again. We're saved. saved. That's right. Our future home. home. That's right. God is with us. us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. 
His grace, absolutely. Grace, unmerited favor by God. Say again over here. That we cannot lose our salvation. We cannot even sabotage our own. He will hold me fast. Share our faith with others so they can come too. That's right. You are a light on a hill, a city that's not meant to be invisible, but we are meant to be seen to declare the glories of God. Hope. Hope does not disappoint, right? We have an eternal hope because we have an eternal inheritance that awaits for us. Forgiveness. Sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, and yet God, who we have violated, is always eager to forgive us. Adoption. I know I love the imagery of adoption. Fully helpless, desperate for someone to have pity on us, and God says, you're mine. Peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding, right? He does all things for our good, I know. He uses even difficult things and good things for our good and for his glory. Over here. Say again. The voice of the shepherd leads us. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, right? We follow the good shepherd because why? He's good and it loves us. And none shall never, yeah, we shall never perish. Relationship. Mm-hmm. There's nobody before or after like you. That's right. You're an incredible, unique creation of God. Yeah. And as you walk through eternity, event by event, mm-hmm. your very existence will glorify God. Mm. That's right. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. God knew you even in your mother's womb. By the way, that's a great passage for when we think about this whole idea of abortion. God knew us. He didn't know cells. He knew a person. Unconditional love. Amen and hallelujah. I'm so glad his love is not conditional because I've given him a condition even the today to not love me. And yet he says, I will always love you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Loving conviction of sin. God disciplines those whom he loves, right? So that we might reflect him more fully. He cares about us enough to even do the hard thing, to kind of kick us in the rear end sometimes. Yeah. Reunited with those that have gone before. Mm, that's right, Dad. Reunited with ones that have left us but one day we will see them again. That's why for the believer, we never say goodbye. We always say, we'll see you again. Just a a short momentary lapse in our togetherness. Our church family. Our church family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not flippant that we refer to one another as family. It's not just a, a catchy phrase but there's depth and meaning to that. That you and I belong to one another. 
I think most poignantly about that whole thing is the fact that we're going to live together forever. (laughs) Think about that. Might as well start getting along now, right? (laughs) Kind of have to in eternity. The power of prayer. Did you know that God in his divine ways chose to work through the prayers of the saints? Now, God will do whatever he's going to do no matter what, with or without us. And he can use donkeys. He can use all kinds of things, rocks. But he desires, his, his primary way in which he desires to work is through the prayers of saints. If my people, what, would pray, humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. Hmm. Yeah, he's not saying, come up here, what do you got for me? He stoops to us. He stoops to us. His word, his eternal and inspired word, our authority for life and for godliness and for the knowledge of him. Brothers and sisters, we could go on and on. I kind of want to. But I have one more point to make. I'll make this quick. Various trials are met by God's varied grace. Various trials are met by God's varied grace. What does Peter say? In this you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is getting at here is this. There's a kind of a there's one a point I'm going to make, but he says already right up front, these trials have a purpose. God is using these trials for a very specific purpose. It's to show the tested genuineness of your faith. We need to understand something, brothers and sisters. In God's economy and the way he's able to work in a divine, eternal manner, we always understand that on one hand, Satan tempts us, and at the same time, God tests us. Using the exact same thing. And Satan's intention in tempting us is to, to, to encourage our faith to flounder, maybe even to walk away altogether. And at the same time, God is testing us so that we might prove to ourselves and to one another, going, oh, I am a child of God. This faith is real. Where Satan desires to take us out and to destroy us, God is actually strengthening us and strengthening our faith through the same circumstance. But what I think is so interesting about the usage of this word various is that it's used only one other time in the New Testament, specifically in this letter of chapter 4. This is where Peter says, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, of course, the context of chapter 4 is that this varied grace is referring to various gifts that are in accordance to God's varied grace. But we must understand that God's varied grace is not limited to spiritual gifts. 
God's very grace also extends to our varied suffering. Point is this. Our troubles may be varied, but so is God's grace. William Barclay, he puts it this way, there is no color or variation in the human institution which God's grace cannot match. There is grace to match every trial, and there is not trial without its grace. Isn't that amazing? That God doesn't just kind of generalize his grace to us. But he says, oh, you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease. I have grace for that. Oh, you are struggling financially. I have grace for that. Oh, you have relational strife that seems unending. I have grace for that. You're you're lost, directionless, desiring an understanding of what the next steps ought to be. God says, I have grace for that. The fact is, God will sustain us by a specific grace for that specific moment. We have reason to greatly rejoice because God the Father chose to save you before the foundations of this earth. Because the Holy Spirit is committed to transform you to such a degree that you would reflect the goodness of Christ in this world. That Jesus Christ made your salvation possible by his death and his resurrection. And so even though your life might be marked currently or will one day be marked by struggle and pain and loss, remember this, dear brothers and sisters, there is one thing that cannot be taken away. Your comfort may be taken away, Your livelihood may be taken away to whatever degree, but there's one truth, one promise that cannot be taken away, and that is your eternal inheritance with heaven. And what did we already sing? One day, as Revelation 21 points out, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. All these things of our former life are gone, and we will reign for eternity with King Jesus. So may we encourage one another with these truths.